Welcome to the Audacity Church Podcast. We pray that you are blessed by what you hear today. We love to hear stories of what God is doing in people's lives. Take some time to share your story of how God is working in your life and email us at amen at loveservego.com. Now prepare your heart to hear from God today. song gets stuck in anybody else's head like every time I hear it I'm like singing it for a week and um, so we'll get to that in a minute well welcome to Audacity Church my name is Ronnie and I'm one of the pastors here and we are glad that you're here this morning uh, to worship with us uh, just through the reading and studying of God's Word and uh, Tanya did an incredible job of reading a chunk of scripture that we're going to get to in a bit but we're in the, this is the last day of a series called Toxic Church, and the idea is for the church not to become toxic. We've really kind of defined toxic church in an over-encompassing view. In addition to that, uh, we've also um, looked at what the hypocritical church looks like and how we're called to love everybody, but yeah, we're still kind of selective with that love. And then we also looked at the legalistic church and the church that's just so driven by rules and regulations and the to-do list and the what-not-to-do list that we miss what it means just to chase after the heart of Jesus. And so what we've done in this series is we've looked at uh, how culture might define the church. We've also looked at how philosophy or an impacting philosophy has defined the church or religion. And then we've uh, given Jesus his voice and we will get to him momentarily. We used that song, that bumper music, if you will, the first week of Toxic Church, and um, I've listened to hundreds of songs. People have sent me songs, and you know, and, and I love that. Um, but I wanted to revisit this song. And I had another song selected for this week, but I think it's important. Hosier, if you don't know, he's 24 years old. He's a songwriter and singer from Ireland, so he probably talks really cool when he is not singing. But if you look at what he says about religion, or specifically, easy for me to say, what he says about the church, he says a couple of things. He says it's a fresh poison each week. He says the church offers, the church he's a part of, offers no absolutes. His church tells him to worship in the bedroom. One of the most impacting lines of that whole song for me says, I'll tell you my sins so you can sharpen your knife. And then he goes on to say, it's a fine looking high horse you're on. And there's a lot of your starving faithful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what happens is the church, I'll use that term loosely, when they hear culture define the church this way, we have three different responses. The first response is, we can just be offended and ignore it. Second response is we can be offended and then what we do is we start bashing it like, oh, they just don't understand or they're ignorant. And so they attack music like this or movies or whatever the culture might be speaking about the church. Or what we do at Audacity is we listen to what culture has to say and then we try to address what culture's perception is about the church. 
I said this in week one, of all the people I ever invite to church or ask people about where the relationship is with Jesus, if they say, you know, I used to go to church or whatever it might be, I've never had one of them tell me, you know, that Jesus dude was messed up. That's the reason I don't go to church. I just couldn't really live the way he, living like he did is a waste of time. But they bash the church time and time again. And culture is always going to look at religious or irreligious person, people the same way. They're always going to be questioning the motivation. It's one of the reasons we don't take an offering at Audacity, whether that's good or bad, and we talk about that uh, quite a bit, is it's because that's what culture, culture, oh, you just want my money. Well, no, we don't want your money. We just know where your treasure is is where your heart is. That's why we ask you to give sacrificially or faithfully. Culture says, well, you know, there's something, you're wanting something from me. Instead of saying, no, we're inviting you in to be a part of our family. It's where we walk through tough times and celebrate together and where we get through the hard times. You know, um, culture is always going to be speaking of the church. They, they always will. And how the church responds to what culture says will show us where our heart really is. The second thing I want us to look at is what is what philosophy? Whether you know it or not, whether your employer, your educational institution, the school that you grew up in, or whatever, even if you're home educated, there is a, a worldview, a cultural worldview that impacts our society. It impacts culture. We've looked at three of them. We've looked at two of them over the course of the last few weeks, and today we're going to end on a guy named Frederick Nietzsche. And I just want to hear. I want you to hear some of the things that Frederick Nietzsche says about religion, and then we want to kind of address them the best way we can. He says it this way: Which is it? Is man one of God's blunders, or is God one of man's blunders? He goes on to say this, sins are indispensable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They're the only reliable weapons of power. The priests live on sins. It is necessary to him that there be sinning. He then, um, I'm not going to read the other one, but he says this also, there never was more than one Christian and he died on the cross. You know, Dr. Tim Keller, who I think I quote at least a couple of times a month, um, is one of my favorite. I think he's just one of the leading Christian thinkers um, in the United States specifically. And there's a lot of people, and he probably even on a global perspective. But I want you to listen to these words. He said, religion is using God to accrue power through your own performance. The result is always self-righteousness and or anxiety, social exclusion, or a general power trip. You know, Nietzsche's philosophy basically says this, religion is a way to approve power and the result is always going to be abuse. That's what the religious institutions do. It's always to gain power. At Audacity, our hope is that we see greatness within you and we create an environment where greatness can be pulled out of you or where you can get the most out of your marriage, where you can get the most out of these complicated relationships that are so challenging. But when we see, whether it's Freud or Nietzsche or whoever it might be, or Hosier, speak to culture, I think it's really important for us not to bash them, but to say, hey, we want to listen. We want to hear what you have to say. And so if religion is always a way to approve power and the result is always abuse, I think it's imperative that we look at what Jesus would have to say. 
What does Jesus say about us and our religiousness? Tanya read a story out of uh, the book of Luke a few moments ago. And and, uh, the reason we do that is we want to worship through the reading of the word. Uh, But we also record that so whoever listens, which there are tons of people that listen to our podcast, can hear the scripture because I I don't have time to to bring all of it back up again. That's why we, we do that. She did an incredible job of reading those 20 verses. And it's affectionately known in Christendom as the, what is it called? The prodigal son. I don't think that's the right name. If we're really honest and we look at that story, I think a better name for that story would be the loving father. Because we see how the father handles his son, the prodigal. You know, Tyson said last week, every time you preach, it's like, this is your favorite story. <laughs> well, I, this is one of mine. And it's because I always saw myself as the prodigal son, and I don't know that I ever saw the loving father the way that I needed to in my own life, just personally in a relationship. I don't know that I ever felt that way, like that I was fully forgiven or fully restored. And so it, it was something that was always pretty personal to me. And the deeper this story goes, the more revelation that God gives me, which I am so thankful for. So for the sake of our talk today, we're going to talk about the lost son. We'll focus on the loving father because I think it's important. But I don't title messages often. They usually have a subtitle or a series title. But if I were to call this talk something, I would call it the lost son. One thing Tanya didn't read for us because it was about 10 verses beforehand. And then she would have to read like 30 verses. But there is a, there's a, a, um, Luke 15 starts off with who Jesus is talking to. And I think that's important for us as we break down this story today. So I want you to, this is in Luke chapter 15 and you can read it behind me on verses 1 and 2. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I want you to know that Jesus is telling the story to the worst of the worst. He is telling the story to the least, most unpopular people in all of culture. They were looked down upon. I mean, tax collectors were hated and despised. And who else is present? The religious of the religious. I mean, the super religious. I mean, if these guys took their robes off, they would have Superman capes underneath them because they were professional religious people. They were looked at in the society as those that had it all together, that have it all figured out. And that's Jesus' audience. And then Jesus tells us, he's telling a story in parables. He tells stories that would, would make their ears be attentive And he gives us three people in the story. He gives us the younger brother. He gives us the older brother. And then he gives us the father. And he gives a very unique perspective on all three. But I want to remind you that this story is about the lost brother. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 15, it basically tells us there was a guy who had two sons. 
And one of them, the younger, which is important to establish, says, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey in the far country and he squandered it all on reckless living. When you and I see that or we read that, we're like, oh, wow, man, that kid was a jerk. But it goes so much deeper culturally. Culturally, he just did the most offensive thing that he could possibly do to his father. In Eastern culture, it's very patriarchal. And he was, goes to his father, who's a patriarch, and this is basically what he says. Let me go ahead and put it to you how it would be translated today in English terms. Dad, go to hell. The only thing I've ever wanted, the reason I've lived under your roof is because I want the inheritance. You kind of got a little bit of money, so I've been waiting for you to die. I don't want to wait anymore, so go to hell. I wish you were dead. Will you go ahead and give me what's going to come to me after I'm dead? Does that put it in a little bit better of a light for you to understand what he did? Culturally, he brought on a death sentence. If, if somebody in the hood, in the neighborhood, would have seen him talk to his dad this way, they would have grabbed him, drug him outside of the city, and stoned him to death. I want you to understand the, the weight of what this younger brother's request was. See, the oldest son would receive the majority of the inheritance anyway, and then there was a percentage that's divided up among the rest of the siblings. He was asking for something that he didn't even really have the right to. He's telling his dad, the only thing I've ever wanted from you is your inheritance. And sadly, this is what a lot of the church does. Father, the only thing I want from you is my get out of hell free card. The only thing I really want from you is fire insurance. Father, I love you. I don't want you in all of my life, but I'm going to give you Sundays for a couple of hours, and I might even serve the church a little bit because it makes me feel better about myself. And I might occasionally be a decent representative of you, but when it really comes down to it, I don't want you in my life. I just want the benefits of that relationship. And I've been there. Sad to say that's been me a lot of my Christian walk. Father, I don't want you in my mess. I just want you to get me out of my messes. The father, recklessly, with love and compassion, divides the inheritance. And then the son goes on, and we kind of get a glimpse. He goes to Vegas, right? He burns everything up on slot machines and prostitutes and buffets. I mean, and has the time of his life, I am sure. I'm sure he has some stories that he could tell that would entertain us all about his experience in the far country. I'm sure he has some stories that when guys are around the water cool, you know, you give the high five and you, you think it's cool to live a certain way or you want to embrace something that maybe you live vicariously through the younger brother's stories. But what's never truly told about all these mountaintops that men are consistently trying to climb instead of walking in humility underneath their heavenly father is they all leave us empty. He repents. See, uh, if you're anything like me, uh, repentance isn't easy. 
Because what repentance requires is us, we're going one direction, and then you turn and go the other direction. Whether it's pornography, whether it's a relationship with your spouse, whether it's how you treat your kids, whether it's how you, you know, slouch at work when your boss isn't around, however you choose to live, whether you're lazy, you're foolish with your time. We have all these things where, oh, I'm really sorry that, you know, I'm this way. Baloney. Repentance means you stop going this way and you change and go this way. That's what happened to the younger brother. He loses everything in his instance, in his circumstance. That's what it took. He lost everything. He finds himself, for a Jewish boy or young man, to find himself not only feeding pigs, but then coming under the consideration of maybe eating what the pigs had. He's at the lowest, most unclean point in his life. And he repents. He prepares a speech, which I think this is what we do. We, and you guys, if you miss Third Thursday, man, I feel sorry for you. Um, I'm not even joking. I'm being really serious. I do. I feel sorry for you. Um, But one of the things that we learned is how to just talk to our Heavenly Father on Thursday and how to really have a real open prayer life and how to apply that. And I know people's lives were changed in three days. It's just amazing what I'm hearing. And whenever um, you repent... Right? When how we treat our Heavenly Father is a lot of times we're like, hey, I'm going to get this speech together. Let me think about how I'm going to... Now, I know he knows all my thoughts, right? I know that he's like, (laughs) he's omniscient, so he kind of knows what's going on. But we prepare a speech. We're like, well, you know, I need to get all my stuff together before I go and talk to him. I need to get all my thoughts in order before I go and talk to him. And and, and so you're you're rehearsing. And this is what he does. He says, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to give him this speech. And and everything's going to change. Everything's going to be okay. And he has this speech. Brings us to Luke chapter 15, verse 20. After he repents, he ends up in the lowest of lows. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I can't ever read this without doing this. Felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us celebrate. For my son who was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I'm going to unpack these four verses for you because there's so much power. And I can't, every time I read it, While he was still a long way off. Let me tell you what that means culturally. That this loving father every day went up to wherever maybe his property ended and he looks a far way off for his son, which is beautiful in itself. But I want you to get the reason, the deeper reason. What this son did to his dad would have been culturally offensive. And this dad was probably praying every day that his son would return. But this is what he knew. If the townspeople got to his son before he did, they would stone him and kill him on the spot because of how he treated his father. And so his dad, his daddy is waiting. I love that it said he felt compassion and then he ran. (laughs) You know, in this culture... 
children would run. Ladies, women would run, but a patriarch would never run. Not only would he have had to gather up all of his robes and embrace them in order to run, or he would have had to strip himself of all of who he was in order to run after his son. And then the son starts in the speech. I got my speech. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I got all these words. And the father interrupts him. If you remember what all he said, what Tanya read just, the father interrupts him, doesn't let him finish. And that's what the heavenly father wants to do to you and I as sons and daughters. He wants us to be in his presence. We don't need to finish this repentance thing. Repentance is important. But our speech that we've played in our head, as soon as you say, Father, I'm sorry, it's over. He's forgiven you. Not because of who you are. Not because of my good works. But because of his son, Jesus Christ. He put on the best robe. Those of you who don't know me, I got obsessive compulsive disorder. And I would used to eat with my family at lunch. And I, my clothes were ass. David, I was dressed to the nines every day. My creases were all legit, my name tag on, representing in my stores. And I would occasionally reach and meet my kids for, uh, till for lunch. And Ashley would always look at me whenever one of them would get close with their fingers to touch me. I'm like, ah! Seriously, it was just dreadful. That's not how the Father would treat us. He would say, bring me your sticky fingers. Bring me your ketchup hands. Put them all over me. Here's my best robe. That best robe, basically, in that ring that he gave him, he is reinstating him back into his rightful position. He is saying, the way that you live doesn't matter, but because of my relationship with you, you are who you have always been. And so many of us stay in the foreign land. We stay in the far country and we never come back to the Father because we don't understand a Father's love because maybe it's never been given to you the way that this Father loves us. Put shoes on His feet. See, the Father demonstrates a heart of compassion. The Father demonstrates restoration by giving him robe and ring. The Father demonstrates a heart of celebration as he does this feast. And he th- and Guys, this would have been like a city-wide feast. It wasn't just for his family. They would have invited everybody in the town. You didn't kill the fatted calf without making a big deal of it. And then the Father demonstrates a heart of true and total recon- reconciliation when he says... I know what you've done, but you're still my son. I know what you've done, but you're still my daughter. I know how you used to live, but we're going to live a different way now. And he's changed. Remember the stories about the lost son. Now the older brother, this is Luke 15, 25 for you as they have your Bibles. Now the older son was in the field. He's out working, earning the father's approval earning the father's praise. As he came near, he drew to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to the older brother, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he had received him back safe and sound. But he was, what was he? Angry. And he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, begged him, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. You never have given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But 
When this son of yours who came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf, and you said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that I have that mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is now found. The audience of Jesus was the tax collectors and sinners. I don't know what label you're carrying around today. I don't know what label you've been tagged by. I don't know what your past holds. Maybe there's a, you know, one of those, like I tell you guys all the time, I don't have skeletons in my closet. I got like entire graveyards. And every one of them haunts me every once in a while. Every one of them will rear its ugly head. And I don't know what you're defined by. But see, Jesus is telling this story. You know, the sinners and the tax collectors, they're the younger brother. The super religious, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the older brother of the story. See, the stagnant or the toxic church will always miss the reason for the party. They won't understand the party. They won't understand why we celebrate when people come out of darkness and into light. The stagnant church won't understand the reason for the party because they want new people to do the same thing that they've had to do and they want people to earn their Christian stripes and they they don't understand the reason for the party. See, the toxic church or the stagnant church and audacity will not be stagnant. I don't. We, we, we have too great of a calling. What the stagnant church does is the stagnants, their works are in the right place, but their heart is in the wrong place. This is what this sounds like. Man, you know, serving, it, it takes a lot of time. I have to be there early or I have to stay late. And I work real hard. And see, the... The religious people, they're, they're the, the toxic, stagnant church. Their works are in the right place, but their heart is in the wrong place. See, the toxic church always has questionable motives. Let me give you an example. There's a friend of mine who's a, um, he's been a pastor for years. He was kind of in transition. And so I asked him, I said, hey, will you just come out and just help me at Audacity? I said, I just want you to help me for about a year. I said, will you give me a year, and let's see where God wants you and your family in that year. I'll help you. You can help me because he's a lot older than I am, but there's some things that he needs to work through, and, and I, my goal was just to really help and love on him. I mean, he's always kind of walked in somewhat of an accountability to me, and, and we are, we're really good friends. And he tells me, yeah, you know what? He goes, let me pray about that. He calls me three days later after praying, which I thought was going to be spiritual, and this is what he said. You know, I was praying about what would my title be at Audacity? Well, you need to come to our church because that doesn't even make any sense. But it was, he was being honest. I laughed because I thought he was joking. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. We'll call you, I mean, master. I, don't, I mean, I jokingly said something. And he goes, well, no, what would I be over? Like nothing. You're going to be under me and under Jesus. That's all I know, nothing else. Like you're going to come and serve me and you're going to come and serve the church or you're not, you're not coming. 
You know, the guy hasn't called me again. Uh, well, he did, but he was asked for something, um, and I was still gracious to him. But see, the toxic church has motives, and the motives are never really right. The motives are, how does it benefit me? Instead of, what can I do for you? Let me just clarify this. Serving the local body of Christ is always going to be inconvenient. And it's never going to be easy because you're not just serving a community of believers. You are also on the front lines of spiritual warfare. You are on the front lines of an adversary that doesn't want to see this church through the third year. If he can get us not to stay through the third year, he knows statistically this church won't be around in 18 months. And so he will do everything in his power. He knows the purpose and mission of this church that we're going to plant. How many churches? 20 churches, right? In how many years? We don't even know, 10 years. How are you going to plant 20 churches in 10 years or 25 churches in 10 years? And we're like, we don't know, but that's what we're going to do. There's like 40 or 50 adults around here. How are you guys already starting another Bible study? We don't know. We just know we're called to plant churches, so we're going to keep doing it. What do you mean you guys have an 18-month plan to put a new church in Midtown or Uptown? How, you guys, do you guys have the money to do that? No. No, we don't have money to do this. We don't know how we're going to do those. It doesn't matter. Well, what do you mean you're raising up leaders to lead campuses and, and, and pastors to lead? This is what we're going to do. We're going to raise up a generation of the greatest communicators that have ever walked the face of the earth to preach the gospel and to make the name of Jesus famous. We don't care how we do it, when we do it. We just know we're called to do it. And if you're called here, just know that the target got bigger. It's not about what position you get about what we get to do because the father loves us so much this one the one that scares me the most see the toxic church it misses the heart of the father it doesn't see compassion and restoration as important it doesn't see celebration and reconciliation as important All it sees, all it sees is how can it serve me and what's in it for me. See, Jesus Church at Audacity, we know the reason for the party. We have a saying around here, and I started saying this whenever I was at my previous employer. Um, My leader used to ask me all the time, he goes, what are you going to do today? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm going to change the world one customer at a time. And so people just started saying that. And so at Audacity, I just started saying that. What are you guys going to do? I don't know. We're just going to change the world one person at a time. Because every person matters. It's not a number thing. It's because behind every number of someone that gives their life to Christ is a family. And behind that family is another generation. And behind that generation is a, is a son or a daughter. Every person matters. Every family matters. We don't care whether we are that there are thousands because we know through our few we are impacting generations because you're impacting your sphere of influence. You're impacting where you work. You're impacting the way that you shepherd and lead your family. Men, that's why I'm so hard on you. Because if you can't shepherd your home, you can't help shepherd this church. It starts at home. It's the hardest place. People are easy. I can hook up with you and you can throw up on me all day and I might spit up on you a little bag. 
And then I get to go home to my family that's lovingly dysfunctional. And I serve them. I don't do the dishes because I want to. I don't do like 12 loads of laundry. You guys have no idea about laundry. The Pepple family does. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, the Bermudez family does. I'm like, That's like all of our families. This was foolish. Why do large families attract large families? Would y'all meet some single people and some people with just a couple of kids? God bless you, Mortons. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, that's right. That's right. They're just getting started. I think uh, yeah, Johnny told me they're going to have eight. Um, no, we got to know. No, okay. All right, all right. Let's <laughs> um, go practice like they are. That was what he told me. Never mind, I remember now. It was in our previous series of I Wanted a Marriage. If you missed that and are listening to the podcast and you thought that got awkward, no, we just do that around here. All right, here we go. A lot, as often as we can. We share notes with each other. All right, what does Jesus Church look like? What does audacity look like? What are you guys blushing for? I'm up here saying it. I mean, I can see the red coming off some of your faces. Some of you are like, we need to check, please. All right, here we go. Jesus Church knows the reason for the party because they know that what we're doing is we're changing the world one person at a time. Every person that we talk to, every person that God allows us to come in contact with matters. And you need to be like the Elkins. Let me just tell you about the Elkins. If they've ever invited you to church, that means they've invited you to church another 150 times. Andrew is relentless. He is the pit bull of inviting people to church. I love that dude. Hannah is the same way. If you guys know her, she's like this. Around here, she's like this. Oh, you know, it's Hannah. She's very introverted and loves everybody. Get her online, and oh my gosh, you would think I pay her to tell people about audacity. It's insane. It's insane. I actually said something. Hey, Hannah shared something again. I'm like, what did she share this week? I mean, that's what we have. Everything. That's right. That's what we have to do. We have to keep inviting They're going to keep telling you no. And guess what? There's going to be a season in their life where the Holy Spirit gets their heart where it needs to be, and they're going to tell you yes. Jesus' church's heart's in the right place. Because Jesus' church isn't really all that concerned about works and doing. Because Jesus' church, they serve because they realize they owe a debt that they cannot pay. See, Jesus' church has Christ-centered motives. We like to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. I was talking to a guy about church this week, and um, he said, we were talking, I was telling him, because people keep emailing us and then having coffee, and then I either scare them off because I tell them you have to be called to a church plan. And I always say church planning isn't for wimps, which I don't know if that's offensive to people, but I just let them know we don't, we don't take wimps here. And um, we don't. So if you're here, you're strong. You walk in that confidence. I'm a church planter. That's what you tell your friends. Oh, yeah, I'm a church planner. Oh, you're the pastor? Well, I'm one of them. Just call yourself one. We're all shepherds, man. No one cares. That's why I say I'm just one of them here. I just founded the thing. I don't know what God's going to do with it. Our motives have to be right because we realize that people matter to God. And see, our motives aren't about position. Our motives are about embracing the least and the most unlikely. It was so funny. A guy said, um, hey, I don't do coffee. Could we do a cold beer? I was like, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. I need to. Well, he's not in here. I need to see what he thinks about putting that on the church card. We'll talk about it later. All right. We should take a vote now. No, sorry. We don't, we don't run that way. All right. Um, uh, <laughs> can I get a second? <laughs> For 
the third. All right, for those of you who grew up in a Baptist church, you're welcome. We just let you vote on something. All right, number four-ish, whatever I'm on. Four-ish. Jesus' church has the heart of the Father. Guys, we need to be reckless in compassion for people. People don't need to earn our trust. We just need to give it freely. Know they're going to hurt you and let you down. We need to be in the business of restoration. And what I mean by that, if someone has wronged you or hurt you, you need to forgive them. Because if not, you're going to carry it. But that doesn't mean they get the place in your life that they had before. And be okay with that. The restoration I'm talking about, I need you to take people and let them know, hey, no matter if you lived it up in Vegas, no matter if you're eating with the pigs, no matter if you're in the lowest of lowest of your lives, our Father loves you just the way you are. We need to be in the business of restoration. And then we need to celebrate. And some of you guys are so much better at this than I am. I get my head down. I just grind it out, stay up late, don't sleep, get up early. I mean, I, I, I'm just always on the move. Uh, I have been trying to not do anything from 10 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Friday to Saturday because I preach to you guys about taking a Sabbath, so I've been trying. And I still work. I sent emails, and I had to confess that to Ashley because um, she wasn't home. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> hey, by the way, I know I'm supposed to not do anything, but I, I sent a couple of emails today. But it was only two. I only did it twice. <laughs> But I don't celebrate well. And I want us to do better at that. I need to help us be better at that. Because we had a goal of $400. And for, the, for you to, to, I mean, to kind of just wrap your hands around what that is for us, okay, um, on any given week, that can be about 25%, or, or I mean, that can be about 75% of what this church brings in on a week. And by brings in, I mean tithes and offering. So we set a goal of $400. It was for 100 backpacks. And not only did you guys give sacrificially, but we had people all over giving. And we blew that goal out of the water. And we should celebrate that. That was a cue. Yeah, thank you. I'm telling you, y'all are going to be a great church one of these days. All right. And then reconciliation. Reconciliation is tough. Because reconciliation means that I have to be in the right relationship with God. Reconciliation is tough because it means that I have to trust that the Father loves me. Reconciliation is hard because it requires something from both parties. See, Paul went around preaching, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get plugged into the ministry of Audacity or support this ministry financially, you can get more information at loveservego.com.